Thanks, Chad, and good morning. Thanks, Chad, and good morning. Hey, there we go. As we come to God's Word, uh, let's pray again. Father God, source of all light and all good gifts, by your Word you give light to our souls. So we pray that you would pour out your Spirit on us this morning. Give us a spirit of wisdom and understanding that our hearts and our minds may be opened to know your truth and to know your way. Be pleased this morning with the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts. Amen. Well, today we are in Ephesians 4, starting in verse 7. But grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Together we say, the grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Now, in this particular passage, there is a religious and literary motif from the ancient world that runs itself through Paul's words here. You can absolutely understand the passage on its own without understanding and drawing from this motif, but it really helps. Just like you can watch a hockey game without understanding the rules for offside or icing or what a good fight is. But Paul organizes his thoughts around this particular theme, and he quotes Psalm 68, which also organizes itself around this motif. And so it's to our benefit to understand, and it brings Paul's vision of Christ into a richer and clearer focus. So the question is, what motif is Paul drawing from in Ephesians 4? Well, there's a well-known concept in the ancient world uh, called the divine warrior. And his Greek-speaking audience would have have understood it right away. And our understanding of the gifts, the captives, the descent and the ascent, and the building up of the body are all major elements 
of this divine warrior motif. And it works like this. When the people are threatened, they try to convince their God to fight for them. And this happened throughout the ancient world. If they're successful, their God goes to war for them or goes to war alongside with them. And all of nature hangs in the balance. If your God loses, uh, you will be godless, and that is scary. Or even scarier, you get absorbed by whatever God won the battle, which is even scarier. But if God defeats his enemies, the natural world is revived and all of creation begins to celebrate. When God returns from the battle, the city gathers to cheer him on. He leads a parade of his captured enemies in a train behind him. He processes at the front of this parade and goes up to the temple. He passes out the spoils of war to his people taken from his enemies. He is exalted in worship, and this worship continues through the building of a new temple or a new monument that will commemorate this victory. And so Paul draws on this to set up our passage with this train of thought. We have the warrior and his procession of captives in verse 8. We have the procession up to the temple in verses 9 and 10. We have the gifts distributed in verses 11 through 14, and the building project in verses 15 and 16. And this passage in Ephesians isn't the only one in Scripture that refers to this divine warrior motif. Just listen. Psalm 68, which Paul quotes in our passage, sets the context for us, and it describes a very similar victory march from the battlefield to the temple. Just listen. God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. Your procession is seen, O God, the procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. From Psalm 18, the Lord lives and blessed be my rock and exalted be the God of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me, who rescued me from my enemies. The earth reeled and rocked, the foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him. Thick clouds, dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones, and coals of fire broke through the clouds. From Isaiah 42, the Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war, he stirs up his zeal. He cries out, he shouts aloud, he shows himself mighty against his foes. And one more from Exodus 15. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury, it consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the hearts of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. 
My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. I hope you see the point that our God has always fought for his people. And Paul wants us to understand how Jesus continues this fight on our behalf. So for us in Ephesians 4, what war is Christ fighting and has he already fought? Well, Paul has already prepared his readers to understand Christ as this divine warrior. The elements are all there. In chapter 2, God's people are threatened. We were dead in our sins. We were led by the sinister prince of the power of the air. We were children of wrath because of the spirit that produces disobedience. We were separated by ethnic hostilities, alienated from each other with no hope, the result of the enemy's plan. We were without God in the world. And so in Ephesians, our enemies are described as Satan, the prince of the power of the air, Sin, the disobedience produced by the Spirit, the powers and the principalities identified as demons and all those who conspire with them, and then death itself, which is the wages of our sin. And not only does Christ defeat all these enemies, he shames them and humiliates them by dragging them behind his victory parade. This is the host of captives in verse 8. He mentions this elsewhere in Colossians 2. It's a commentary on the same idea that he, Christ, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. So who is captured? Who is on display? And remember, we're talking about spiritual realities, This is real spiritual warfare. We're not in the land of tangible, touchable things, but we're also not in the land of pure metaphor. These are spiritual realities. So Satan is captured. He is restrained. Because of Christ, he cannot claim us. He's been bound, and his house has been plundered. Remember that Satan took his most strategic shot against Jesus during the trial and the crucifixion, and it failed. Satan is restrained. Sin has met a stronger and rival power. Sin is no longer the dominant influence in our lives. It's been pushed out by spirit. We're no longer controlled by the flesh, but we're controlled by the spirit. And death itself has been beaten. Christ was the forerunner, the first fruits of the resurrection. And he says, what happened to me will happen to you. And so what does this victory procession look like and how do we benefit? Well, within the divine warrior motif, the train would have had three stages and we see it here as well with Christ the conqueror out front 
And trailing behind him are the redeemed, the people of God, the conquered, which are the embarrassed enemies, and then the gifts, the spoils of war. And we'll talk about those in a minute. Paul takes us back to Psalm 68 to make this link even stronger. Psalm 68 is a victory hymn that describes God's triumph over the Jebusites. And so after God conquers Israel's enemies, and this is, according to the psalm, while all the fighting men sleep, so this is God's victory alone, the Ark of the Covenant returns to Jerusalem in a parade, and it makes its way up to Mount Zion. And trailing behind the Ark are the cheering Israelites, the defeated prisoners, and the spoils of war. And we have the same picture in Ephesians 4 with the host of captives and the gifts in verse 8. And the victory parade, the procession of Jesus, begins at his resurrection from the grave, continues with his ascension, and it never, ever, ever ends. Listen to how the angels and the dead in Christ talk about him in Revelation. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ has come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered. So can we see it? We need to hold this picture in our minds while we're alive. Jesus is processing from the grave all the way to the throne. Trailing behind his chariots, tied and captured, are our enemies. He makes his path from grave to glory, back to the Father's right hand, cheered on by every angel and all who are dead in Christ. Even further behind his enemies are the spoils of war that he won. He chooses not to hoard them, but to give gifts to his people instead. And so he pours out his spirit on us and then gives us the gifts and says, use these, build my church, and I will be with you even to the end of the age. And he makes his way to the Father, receives him proudly. And his Father says the words that we all hope to hear, well done. And Jesus says here, I have kept safe all those who you have given me. Here are all the names. None of them have been lost. They are all kept safe. We need to store this picture in our minds for the storms and the trials of life. Now, what about the gifts? Well, he does not hoard them. They belong to him. They are rightfully his. Uh, but he chooses to distribute them to his people. Our divine warrior is loving. 
He is mighty, and yet he cares for us. The same Jesus who conquers Satan, sin, and death, the same Jesus who will return again with a sword, also shows us personal love, compassion, kindness, and forgiveness. He does not leave us alone when he ascends. He doesn't say, I'm done with earth now. That was a lot of trouble. So all you earthly people and your earthly problems are your own. No, he returns to his Father in heaven. But he does not leave us without his presence. He gives gifts. He distributes these gifts to his church, not because he has to, but because he wants to. He's already given the gift of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2, and here he gives gifts specifically to build up his church. These gifts are people and the ministry that comes from these people. Staying on our theme, these gifts represent the building project of Christ, our divine warrior. Remember, the culmination of the procession to the temple is to create a monument in honor of the champion. The church is his monument after his victory. It is a living, breathing temple that continues to bear witness that Jesus is alive, he has conquered our enemies, and that he is Lord. So he distributes these gifts to build up and to maintain the church. And these gifts may not be distributed as we would choose because gifts and tasks and personality are not uniform. They are not even distributed in proportion to our faith or our skills or our natural capacities. They are distributed as Christ chooses. And so the question is, are these gifts offices or people? In other words, does everyone get these, or do only your pastors and paid staff get them? And here the sentence structure really matters. Uh, how many commas should there be in the translation? And I will spare you uh, the details of the long debate in verse 12, uh, and just tell you that I take the view that these gifts are distributed to all. A few will be called to particular offices and jobs for the purpose of equipping these gifts and building up, but the priesthood of all believers is in view here. These are gifts given to everyone. It may remind you of Moses in Numbers 11 when he exclaims, after being a little frustrated, would that all Jehovah's people be prophets. And it shouldn't surprise you to look around and see these gifts. Some of you are very skilled teachers, ready to explain God's word and God's world. Some of you burn with zeal for the lost. And if you're not evangelizing and talking to the lost, you feel restless. Some of you are very service-minded. You see needs and you meet those needs before the rest of us even know there's a need. Some of you bring a prophetic edge, ready to deliver truth in an encouragement or a necessary critique. And some have pastoral gifts, ready to sit beside the dying, 
to offer wise counsel, to chase away the wolves from the church, or to preach the word of God. Nobody has all the gifts, and nobody has none. And by the way, this is not an exhaustive list. Uh, We know this because there's further lists of gifts in the New Testament uh, that have different gifts. But this is what Paul had on his mind in thinking about Jesus' ascension. Your pastors and your staff don't have all the gifts. They might hold an office or lead a specific ministry of the church, but they don't have all the gifts and they don't do all the ministry, and nor should they. If you have the Spirit, then you have the Spirit's gifts. One of the jobs of your pastors and your staff is to equip you so that your gift is used well, as verse 12 says it is, so that you don't waste your gift. And when we're healthy together, we all do this seamlessly, directing the gifts, equipping everyone, and using the gifts just happens. And here's the cool thing. These ministry gifts from Jesus are exactly enough to build up his church in every age. When Christians were subject to a brutal emperor, his gifts were enough. When the church held seats of royal and political power, his gifts were enough. When Christians are difficult to find in the halls of power, his gifts are enough. If Yellowstone erupts and plunges us all into dark chaos, the gifts that he's given to his church will still be enough. If we ever inhabit a space station, his gifts will still be enough, and it will be sad. If the number of Christians around us dwindle, he will still supply what the church needs. Or for you optimists, if we experience another great awakening and a massive increase in the number of believers, we'll probably get more gifts. Christ supplies exactly what he needs for his church. Why? What's the purpose of our Savior's generosity? Fortunately, this one is really simple. Christ has ascended from grave to throne so that he might fill all things. The glory of the Lord will fill the earth. Christ has ascended, but he still continues to nourish his people, his body, the earthly church. So the blessings of the Lord will always rest on his people. The gifts of the Lord will always be used by his people. And the temple, the church that God is building, will be kept safe and built in exactly the way he intends. We, the church, get to bear witness about that fullness of Christ on earth until it happens in the whole cosmos. We get to model for each other and for a watching world what it means for Christ to fill all things. When we do it right, like verse 15 says, we grow up in every way into him. So the question is, what do we do? If we're the receivers of these gifts, 
What do we do with them? Well, here's some do's and don'ts. Do. Use them. The gifts are given to equip the saints to bring the body of Christ into its intended shape and purpose. And the purpose is the works of ministry. Look look what has happened just for us to be able to worship this morning. The church is clean. Somebody did that. The table is set. Somebody did that. The musicians arrived early. The spouses of the musicians agreed to bring all the kids to church by themselves. They're the real MVPs here. Folks are sitting in the sound booth to make sure that people at home can hear Every classroom in this church is full of kids right now, so thank their teachers. And this is just the stuff that we can see. Hospital visits were made this week to encourage the sick and pray for them. Anonymous financial gifts were given to those in need, not to mention the regular gifts and the routine tithes. Bible studies took place. Prayer happened for each other. Lost people learned about Jesus this week because of your gifts. Many were encouraged, and I'm sure that some were even confronted in their sin. When this is done, the body of Christ is built up. And our goal is exactly what Paul describes in Romans 12. Just listen. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness." So use them. Identify them. Do you see giftedness in others? Encourage them. Do you see giftedness in yourself? Develop it. Ask others what they see. Ask God where you should spend your energy. Again, it's not if you should minister within the body, it's where. And support them together. This is not an individual maturity project. This is a collective maturity project. Verse 13 says that ministry is done until we all attain the faith and maturity that pleases God. And then some don'ts. Don't boast in your gift. Who brags about a gift? That's stupid. Don't be jealous of other gifts. They didn't earn it any more than you earned yours. It was given. Don't be jealous. Don't ignore them. This is a dumb story, but I'm going to tell it anyway. Last week, we were trying to go to Costco, and we could not find our Costco card. And I tried to help find the Costco card, and I discovered what I can only describe as a treasure trove of gift cards in my wife's purse. 
without exaggeration, no fewer than 30 Starbucks gift cards, all under $5, relax. <clears throat> Which is great, because people love my wife, and they should, she's delightful. But use them. <laughs> like, you know, that's, that's a lot of coffee. Use them. You know, don't die with 30 Starbucks gift cards that haven't been used. And I would say the same thing to us. You've been given gifts. Don't, don't die without using them. Lastly, don't disconnect ministry or the gifts of ministry from the victory procession of Jesus Christ. These gifts are costly. The gifts that Christ gave to his church were earned by his willingness to suffer and die for sins that weren't his. We receive because he gave his life and chose a violent death. He endured separation from the Father so that we could receive unity with the Father. And the cost of these gifts is visualized this morning in front of us. Jesus took the cost of his new covenant. He paid this cost with his blood and with his body. And when we eat and drink at his table, we proclaim his death until he comes again. This table is yet another gift from our King. Let's pray. Father God, giver of all good gifts, you have raised us to new life in Christ. You have transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to your kingdom full of light and glory. You have not left us alone, but brought us together to bear witness to your love. You have prepared our steps for ministry within these walls and outside them. So now help us to receive the sign of your covenant at your table. We come at your invitation. Amen.